Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, this is Alan Averill. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good elevenses, good tiffin, good wherever, good whomever, good however I may find you, animal, vegetable, mineral, who knows, whatever. Episode 70 of Agitators Anonymous is going to be a sort of a nerdy talk. Nerdy, I keep overusing the word nerdy. I suppose that I've been inculcated with the idea that somehow just being interested in something means you're nerdy. I guess like the 90s Hollywood sitcom where being nerdy just meant you were a girl who tied your hair up and had glasses and all of a sudden you blossomed into a cheerleader. One could say that's what's happened to me under lockdown. In fact, I'm sure many do that I've blossomed into finding my true calling, speaking to myself in an empty room and going slightly mad. Well, the rain is teeming down. It's back down to six or seven or eight degrees. A classic Dublin summer after a tiny little heat wave. Well, don't forget that we had weather before the last two or three years. You know, we had weather in the 70s and the 80s even. Hmm? Weather. Anyway, what am I talking about? Right, so this one is going to be a nerdy, to overuse that word, little discussion about some musical stuff. Some um, people have asked me some really interesting questions about um, being in a band, about the ideas you had when you formed a band, about ideas to writing music and all that kind of thing. And some of them are just too good to waste on um, being stuck in my DMs or um, my by now blind responses because I can barely see my phone as uh, my 
eyesight is clearly failing me. Um, as some of you may have spotted by my YouTube videos, whereupon I am modeling a very, uh, you know, a few different sets of glasses by now. What am I talking about exactly? Nothing in particular, just waffle and nonsense. However, yeah, so these questions won't just languish in my DMs or some of them are um, have come through my Patreon and I've answered in different ways. If you want to go over and support the show, go to my Patreon.com. There's no tears. There's no um, rhyme or reason to it at all. You can be a patron of the, you know, well, a patron of all the stuff I'm creating and putting out there for as little as a dollar a month or whatever else. But there's been some interesting questions that have been coming my way. And so I thought, well, let's just make episode 70 some um, some musical stuff. Some musical stuff. Yes, of course. Perfect grammar. Um, some questions about music, about making music, about being a musician, that kind of thing. So let's have a look. Let's have a look. Um, so someone did say to me um, when I went and did that show at Roadburn, um, had I changed my mind about being on stage in front of no one? I suppose that I'd made quite a big deal about not doing one of those live performance gigs where you just hired an old, a venue and pretended to put on all your stuff. And the question is, somebody asked me, what's the difference between doing it with Primordial and doing it with someone else? Well, I suppose the question sort of answers itself um, and it's implied within the question. Well, Primordial is essentially my life's work. I mean, I've been in it twice as long as I haven't been, um, so to speak, in uh, 30 years, 30 years and 15 years before that, roughly speaking, um, where I was alive. So I've been in the band twice as long as I've, well, you listen, you do the math. Um, and so I'd made quite, I suppose, an angry statement, um, you know, and who could really um, resent that considering the circumstances and uh, and still are the circumstances that musicians find themselves in, whereby uh, music, culture, art, all of those kind of things just seem completely expendable to um, almost every arbitrary rule that comes our way down the line. Um, but this person asks me, well, it, they say, it's great that you enjoyed it being on stage again, but how does it compare? Um, and... What is the difference between doing something like that and doing something with Primordial? Well, the Roadburn thing, I thought at the time I should make a statement as a musician. I talked with Tommy from Saturnalia Temple and we said, you know, man, we should go there. We should make a statement that we can still go and be a musician and perform with other people in a room playing music together. Um, and I have great respect for the Wolven Nest guys. And when they said, listen, will you sing the song? I said, I'm going to do it, but I will only do it if I come in person. And we have to be part of the process. So send me the song. Um, I'm going to write the lyrics. And then I took part in the song at the end of the um, The Nest broadcast. Now, I've made videos before with the band, with Primordial. Um, and, you know, where you've had um, the little gurney kind of wheel, I guess it's called, and somebody, you know, moving the camera as you lip sync along to a song. And if you remember the video for Babel's Tower, that kind of thing. So I treated it, uh, I treated the Roadburn um, experience kind of like making a video. Not my video, but let's say having a bit part in someone else's video, someone else's musical um, video. And on those terms, when you were there playing, um, with the energy with everybody on the stage felt like a proper band because we were playing live. Of course, we weren't miming as you are when you're making a video, but it felt like a real band playing. 
Except for the fact, of course, that when you looked out into what should have been a packed road burn, you just saw cameras on gurneys and wheels and kind of like a roller coaster thing as it moves around filming you. Um, and it was a strange feeling. It was a very odd feeling, but the energy was great. But of course, you step on and you step off. But like I said, what you're doing is being a bit part in someone else's musical vision. And on those terms, it was totally fine. I thought it was very important to make a statement, as I said, that um, a statement which was some of us are going to make the effort, despite all the hoops we have to jump through and the tests and all the bureaucracy to go and do it. Because as they say, if it's not the gulag that gets you, the paperwork will. And somehow... I kind of felt a bit like that, that we really have to make this effort and and do this. And so thankfully, someone like me has the time um, to be able to make that schedule work. Obviously, these things are much easier when you don't have a family and all that kind of thing. Um, and of course, you don't have a job. Well, if your job was a musician, then you certainly have no job right now unless you're um, unless you've morphed into gaming um, on Twitch. You know, as an article I recently read in NME kind of said, oh, it's great. Musicians have found a new purpose. Oh, yeah. In a future which has no gigs in it, um, they've sidestepped into gaming. Like, wow, really? NME, thanks for understanding the nature of creativity and the nature of art. I shall remember to remove you from my Christmas card list. Anyway, that is a little side swipe, a little aside, so to speak. But I digress. So what is the difference? The difference, I suppose, is... Um, the difference, I suppose, is that you are taking part in someone else's musical vision. So you are kind of like, if you can imagine, in a sitcom or something, you're like a walk-on part. You walk on, get a few cheers, and then walk back off, and you stand in the wings and watch it all unfold. Sort of. You know what I mean. It's a very similar feeling to when I take part, for example, in the Me and That Man thing. I got the, you know, the song from Adam... Um, and he just said, OK, you know, you write the lyrics, you arrange what you're going to arrange or the singing for Marduk, Accuser, Opposer. What you're doing is you're lending your um, your uh, passion, your skill, your um, ability and desire to want to work with someone else to um, meet their levels of expectation for their vision of a song. And so on those terms, I always try and give um Absolutely 100%. So my attitude to the Roadburn thing was I am going to, to put it in simple, dumb terms, I am going to sing the shit out of this. I'm going to put every single thing into this one Hail Mary pass and um, someone's going to catch it at the other end. And you have to have that belief in your own ability to be able to do that. Any moment of self-doubt, if you have to do something just the once, live once. I remember once standing on stage trying to sing, How is it that I become the hunter and the hunted? This bit at the end of Lone Wolf Wilter by Winter, Wilter? Winter by Destroyer 666. A great piece of singing that was originally done by Phil, um, the original bass player, as I understand. And I stood on stage at Party San and all I heard through the monitors was of Ian's very noisy guitar and had to stick my finger in my ear and I couldn't find the key. This is 2005 or six, and I learned quite a lot that day, which is have a word with the monitor engineer if you're going to stand at, start on stage in front of 10,000 people and make a you know an off-tune fool of yourself. Um, or else what you have to do is just be able to pull, to push straight through and go, you know what, I know where the key is. I'm going to be able to hear it. It's going to be fine. But 
that's the big difference between the 2005 or 4 me and 2006 7 me. Once the band got a little bit bigger, Gathering Wilderness to the Nameless Dead, that kind of stuff, 2007, 2008, I thought, okay, no more hobbyism. You now are a proper musician. You're not you're not just the guy who, um, you know, happens to sing in the band and is waiting around for the party or whatever. You're a proper musician. Um, and if you don't, you know, uh, tighten yourself up, um, straighten yourself out, you're not going to be able to sing the Coffin Ships every night because it's fucking hard. So that was a great moment of understanding where you have to go, okay, well, I'm going to sink or swim here. Either I accept that I'm going to be a musician and so in the beginning, because people ask me often, um, do you have any fear when you go on stage? And I say, no, not anymore. I used to in the early 2000s, um, a degree of not fear, but, you know, trepidation. And there were moments, especially when you're going to sing something like the Coffin Ships, um, the chorus bit, which is hard. It's very hard. Um, at least within my range, my capability. But now, you know, but you learn to own it because that's what you have to do as a musician. You have to own the things that you write. You can't go to stand on stage and go and people go, ah, and they give you that look that sort of, hey, you tried your best, but, you know, you only did it half as good as you could have is a horrible sinking feeling. So you have to decide, okay, from now on, I own everything. And that's been the process of the last 15 to 20 years to take ownership of the things you create and try and not second guess them, not doubt them, to go, all right, I can power through here. I'm going to sing this to the utmost of my ability. I'm going to sing the shit out of this. And so therefore, that's just the process of, I think, going from becoming a hobbyist or becoming um, somebody who... Um, just ended up singing because they couldn't play anything else well enough, which is kind of how we all start out when we're teenagers. Like, oh, who can sing? Can you sing? No, I don't know. Who can sing? Can you can't play the bass? No, I can't play the bass. I don't know. I presume originally in Primordial in 1991, the intent was that I would learn how to play the guitar um, and sing. But I mean, look, hey, that was never going to happen, really, was it? So what you have to learn is to trust in your own ability. And that's why when I people don't really believe it when I talk about with Primordial that we put an awful lot um, on the long finger or so. Maybe it's a very Irish attitude. The long finger is a strange colloquialism. What I mean by that is that what you do is you are never entirely prepared. You sketch the song, some are 60, 70, 80% done, some are 30% done. And what you do is you leave. Like sometimes I find myself writing lyrics. I have an idea. I write a few words down. And in an hour before God's Old Snake is to be recorded, there's a deadline and the pressure just makes everything come out. And you have to, got to perform under pressure. Some people don't like it. They want to take ages mulling over details and changing things. I don't. I want to work instantly. So I try and treat the studio a bit like I do a live show. For example, the Wolven Nest thing, which was this is going to be instant. You're almost editing as you go when you're writing the lyrics, when you're singing, figuring out which inflections go where. Like it's it's studied, don't get me wrong. There's hard consonants and soft consonants on different cymbal notes and you're trying to lock in some of the da ba da ba hard um, notes in with the bass drum. So there is, you know, a little bit of Kill the King, Dio, Rainbow style, um, 70s rock a wizardry, which I try and in my own small way apply to the things that I'm doing, which maybe you might not think about. Oh, you sail across the notes and you land on the bass drum, etc. This kind of stuff. So it's thought about, but you have to trust in your own ability to literally think on the spot and work through a problem um, exactly as it happens. And that's partly what playing live is. You stand out there and you go to sing the first song and you go, oh, okay, the monitor isn't how I left it. And so you have to go, okay, we're going to have to cope with this then fix it. Or um, also you get problems with your voice. 
um, because if you're not used to singing f- um, for a few months, which now I'm not, so I'm, if I had to do, start a tour tomorrow, I guarantee you four or five days in, my voice would be rebounding going, what are you doing making so much noise every evening over all of this other noise? And those are the days when you've got to stay quiet. You've got to, um, you know, lock yourself uh, in your little bunk and um, not talk, which, as you can imagine, for me is quite a difficult prospect. So what am I talking about? What I'm saying is that you have to approach, you have to be reliable. So when the Wolvernest guys say to me, hey, we're doing this thing, can you sing? What they're saying to you is we trust you in your ability and as a person to follow through to the best of your ability. The feeling when you do something and let someone down. I remember doing vocals for a disaster album and this was before I really understood technology or anything like this. I didn't have a microphone, nothing like any of the stuff that we have now. And I thought, Okay, I had my friend Jerry from um, Death is the Leveler, who often plays with Primordial, come down with his Zoom recorder and we tried to record it. I had headphones on through a PA, a complete disaster. And um, after being such good friends with the disaster guys, I felt like I'd let them down because I not because of the performance, but because of the technology involved or rather my misunderstanding of it. And the fact that I didn't seem to be able to get into a normal studio to just sing four lines. It's somewhere on Satan's Soldier Syndicate album. It doesn't sound too bad. Whoever the engineer was rescued the performance from out of the um, out of the ether. But it could be done better. But it taught me a lesson, which was be completely prepared. So, for example, the Me and That Man song that I did, I thought, OK, I took a, I took a long time studying over what I would write the lyrics about to make them very impactful. You take out words that are unnecessary, that jumble up um, or set say complicate or make the um, the wording and phrasing clumsy. This is a quite a, ends up being quite a skill to remove the does and ands and wheres and, and you have to start every line on uh, a note that you can climb up from. Starting it with B's and ors and then going up or down. You try and avoid that and so you go to town on what is expected of you because you want your song to be um, absolutely impressive, let's say. The people listen to it and go, all right, as I said, he sung the shit out of that one. Which brings me to another sort of question somebody asked me, which is, are bands competitive? Um, You know, do you watch each other from the side of the stage? Um, How do you feel about um, when you see, when you feel like a band has kicked your ass, let's say, so to speak, and it's a very good question, and um, there's a little, quite a lot of different ways to answer that. Um, when we were kids, when you're a teenager, you are competitive because you're all starting out together, whether it's Primordial, Crocod, Nabandi, Incarnate, and you also you're a teenager, and you're full of all the bullshit stuff that goes on in teenagers' heads. Um, and there isn't really a way to do it. Teenage boys are competitive by nature. I'm competitive by nature. And so you were in a scene together, but, you know, you wanted, you kind of wanted to have the demo that sold the most copies or the best looking cover. I mean, it was just inevitable. And so, you know, Kurokon's album came out just before ours, and that was a sort of a big thing. But as you grow older, you break away from that sort of attitude. And certainly these days, I have uh, no attitude like that. After X amount of years playing in a scene in Dublin, um, and somebody says to me, oh, you know, how do you feel that, uh, you know, say, Kurokon is playing in countries in South America you haven't been to? And it's like, well, it's great for them. (laughs) We are going uh, since 91, 92. I know them since we're 15, 16 years old. 
to still harbour some sort of competitive edge with people when you're in your 40s seems a bit reductive to me. And also if you're fairly, you're comfortable and confident in the music that you're making yourself, you don't really feel like you need to compete. Somebody said to me about five or six years ago, we're playing, I think at Hellfest, between Crisian and Suffocation, they were, are you worried? And I was there, no, of course not. Why would I be worried? To me, Primordial is way heavier than those bands. With all due respect, you know, I'm a fan of old Crisian and uh, hey, I like some Suffocation. Um, but what I mean by that is the heaviness of Primordial is a different kind of heaviness. It's within um, the lyrics. It's within the things that we stand for. It's within the tragedy, the melancholy, the desperation, the might, all of those things that are interlinked to something, to, the, to some humanity that's within Primordial without sounding all um, over the top about it. And so I have no worries. In fact, let's open the show with Stolen Years after something that's really brutal. Now, okay, you divide the crowd, the people who go, eh, we'll walk away anyway. But for people who are just standing in there out of the sun or whatever, or they are open to liking both bands. Hey, look, I mean, I love Anathema. Um, I love Immolation or Incantation. No big deal. I'll watch one after the other. Of course, great. But for those people, the fact that you come on and open with something that is so um, heartfelt, I suppose, can just make everything sound heavier. And so, no, you have no worries, but it's not a competition. I don't worry about who we're playing before or after. And this comes from having utmost belief in the songs that you're writing and the conviction behind them. Um, if you can look at your canon of songs and go, OK, we're going to do Bloodied Yet Unbowed, into Gods to the Godless, into Coffin Ships, into all this kind of stuff. It doesn't bother me who we play before or after because, and it's a very important thing, and it's something that I think... Um, a lot of bands and fans maybe don't quite realize is that the difference between, and this is going to sound maybe a little bit pretentious, but an art and entertainment um, becomes quite striking every now and again for some people in those in that context. Because if you're going to stand up on the stage and, let's say, sing about zombies or fast cars or whatever, you know, excuse my um, patronizing tone. It's not meant in that respect. Believe me, I like lots of bands who sing about both of those things. Um, but if you sing about something that pe has a deep connection with people, when you get it right at a gig, you have them and they have you. And it's a sort of sense of communion that is um, something, there's something of the other about it, which you don't get from just having riffs and headbanging and singing about um, something that's um, fantasy. Because what you're involved is, you know, what you're involved then is a kind of entertainment, um, traditional, you know, it's, it's there's nothing, ab absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you're not making a deep connection. So on that sense, in that sense, Primordial has a different set of um, weapons going into the fight of playing live. Then we're like, we're, we're armed with some different things, you know, I can pull out of my pocket or whatever you want to say, the metaphors you want. And when it clicks or when you see a band where whatever they're doing and singing about really resonates in a sense with people on some sort of emotional level, when they reach that plane, that plane of playing live and that sense of communion with people, um, whether it was the devil's blood or my dying bride or the aforementioned anathema or whoever it may be, um, you know, it's for some of the older pagan metal bands, when it touches upon something, when they play in a certain area or to a certain crowd who um, have really taken um, that romantically to their soul, it makes um, a very big difference to things you're singing about. Blah, de blah, de blah, de blah. But you see what I mean. And so the idea that um, you're still competitive after all these years 
definitely not. I love to see my friends' bands kill it. When we played at Kilkim Zaibu and um, we played in the Baltics um, in uh, Lithuania, um, we played after Destroyer 666 and they just killed it. They crushed it. It was like a proper 80s speed metal performance and I just thought, ah, they have us. Of course, you know, we rose to the occasion, but, you know, they they, they set a pretty high bar. Um, and that's the same way I feel. I was, um, I got to the goosebumps watching them and you get amped up then for your performance. Or if we were before them, you'd go, all right, I'm going to lay it. We're going to lay it out and you're going to have to follow this. And, um, you want that that sense of um that sense of driving each other to your best performance is really really uh, important i think but i i love to see the friends uh, who are my bands or often sometimes unexpected shows that kick my ass um once upon a time we did a tour with solstifer where they put us and solstifer on the same bus together and i had you know pulled a few strings and twisted a few arms to get solstifer on the tour but we were kind of like kindred spirits on this pagan metal tour with maybe some other bands that we um, had less in common with musically. But it was clear that Solstafir were drawing everyone to the side of the stage, like moths to the flame. All the other bands would come out to watch a Solstafir because they were so unique. They had this air of mystery about them and they were devastating. On most days, they just were absolutely, um, yeah, transcendent. And... It really inspired, I think, everyone to raise their game. It certainly inspired me and Primordial to, we're going to raise our game to our kindred spirit band. But every day you drifted down to watch them when you heard the opening notes of, um, you know, um, of the first song from Cold or whatever it is, 180 Days in the Desert. And those notes and you heard them and the intro. And yeah, it sent a shiver up your spine because they were sort of like your boys, you know. And that is a very um, important kind of feeling to feel kinship with lots of bands or moments where you know, um, you catch up with a band who are your friends, whether it's Niflheim or Rotting Christ or whoever, and you go, ah, you come downstairs to the side of the stage and you hear the opening notes of King of a Stellar War and you go, well, there's something that's made mad. Uh, you know, as I said, the goosebumps, I can see them now on my arm. Um, stand up. And they have done for 25 years or whatever, you know. And this is a really, um, if you were a super competitive still of nature, maybe, I don't know. I don't think most bands have it now after a certain age. I think it's something you have that's connected to your youth. Um, as a competitive, fiery young man, you want, you kind of, you always want to um, somehow get one over on, well, sort of get one over on people, etc. And that's something that you lose in time. But it also comes with having um, an understanding of the um, power of the composition of your own songs and that you don't need to do that anymore. Now, I, of course, we do all know those famous stories about bands being on tour and the main band going, well, you can only use half the lights and half the amps and that kind of thing. This seems to be a proper 70s kind of 80s thing whereby, um, I don't know, let me think, Rush would support Kiss or something and they would get half the lights. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. I've just plucked two names from the ether. Um, but that generally doesn't really happen anymore, although you do hear some stories about it every now and again on tour. I'm quite thankful that I can't really think of that many tours with bands that we've done where we didn't get along with them. Um, I think that that's especially true of, um, I think Irish people, um, yeah, maybe I'm being a bit cliched here, but I don't think it's quite in their nature to be the um, 
insular guys who hide in the backstage room and plot and plan and sort of resent the fact that the other bands are doing well. Certainly when Dread Sovereign plays, um, it's like a... You know, my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. Most definitely everyone congregates in our backstage because they have the comedy double act of Johnny King and Hooley to entertain them. And that's just the kind of way I think the Irish sort of deal with it. Um, with all due respect to both of those two uh, fast up and coming comedians in their own right. But no, I think the, the age of or the edge of competitive um, behavior is sort of long gone because you have a confidence in your own ability. Wow, how did I drag so many minutes out of discussing just that one simple question? Ah, this is the, uh, this is this is my uh, ability to waffle and bullshit. Well, now let's have a look at another question. So I'm asked, and this is a pretty good question. What do I think about covering songs in different styles? Is it a tribute to the original song artist, or more a kind of sad joke, or something completely different? While, for example, The Cure covers from Nadia or Year of No Light or Amazing, etc. On the other side, I'm reading the question now verbatim. On the other side, for example, Leo Moracchioli Frog Leap. Unfortunately, I do know what that is. Doing metal covers of pop songs seem like a pointless perversion of the original song. Well, this is a kind of interesting question because I think it addresses something deeper in modern society, which is um, I think younger people's younger people's young people's obsession with novelty. It's not the first time you've stood at a festival and watched um, the kids dressed as, um, you know, animals and all sorts of things. They're dressed up um, for a novelty band like We Butter the Bread with Butter or Eskimo Coal Boy or something or, you know. And this seems to be a very modern thing in the last five years based on the sort of um, optical society that we live in. Um, because it seems... In, for young people who are maybe for young people without sounding patronising who like songs the YouTube cover done in a silly way let's be honest those um, if you don't know what Frog Leap is it's horrific sort of like covers of metal songs done in a pop way and this band go on tour they take slots at festivals that belong to proper bands um, I'm not going to pull any punches about my opinion about it um, and it's it's something that just ends up being a novelty party thing at the end of the night, which once would have been the place of an actual genuine rock and roll band because that was enough for people. But this desire to want um, people dressed as silly animals and all that kind of thing, the desire to, um, I think, obviously it reflects, I suppose it hits a nerve with me as somebody who considers what we do art, that somehow another artist somewhere has been bumped off the bill for um, a covers band to do like, a metal reggae versions of Don't Stop Believing or something like this dressed in silly clothes and a part of you I mean has it always existed I don't know I mean dumb daft bands have always existed look at new metal in the 90s or whatever but now it seems to be something um, to, it seems to be um, a sort of deeper cultural resonance which is um, that novelty the incongruity of a situation i.e. you know very well the things that people share on YouTube or the things that people share in direct messages with each other are always incongruous. A friend of mine said, you know, if you dressed up in all your black metal makeup and all your well, all your black metal blah, blah, blah clothes, as she said it, and walked up and down the street in front of you, which has lots of nightclubs on it. And just when people are coming out of the nightclubs and just someone filmed you just talking and engaging with people, this is what would make a viral video, because what people like is the incongruity of something they're not used to seeing in a different situation and the, it's the God you have to see this 
sharing thing that's poked. Now, however that's quantifiable, that's a very important thing in understanding the modern um, algorithm. And so, yes, bands come along and do like silly covers of famous songs where it's all cut and edited in this modern, very quick way and they're dressed in a silly fashion. And people who don't know, who are, let's say, peripheral fans of the music will share it. That's why, you know, something like, um, you know, five cellos playing Metallica songs gets five million hits. What you do, it seems cynically, is pick the biggest band in the world, pick a bunch of instruments. Maybe you're doing like a, a bluegrass cover of ACDC or something. You could literally just go, OK, let's pick a huge band and make a cover version of that band only in, let's say, an Irish traditional, um, you know, kind of speed Irish traditional um, trad punk version of Slayer or the misfits and make an album of that and it would do way better than any particular musician in that band who might be trying to make original music and that's just the nature of things novelty um drags people in um so i have kind of multiple views on this do I, what do i think about covering songs in different styles well i mean i've heard um lots of different covers of um I guess, heavier songs that have been done in a kind of sad, acoustic, melancholic way, and they can be particularly beautiful. Um, some bands are just, you know, like the, you mentioned The Cure. That you, how many covers of um, Love Song have you heard? Brilliant covers. This is, there's many ways to interpret that song. I suppose it really depends on if the intent of the cover is um, true to the intent of the original, i.e., the um, the real artistry at the heart of the cure. If that's something you respect and you want to turn, let's say, a forest into an acoustic song, I could see that. I couldn't. I mean, I've seen you know people doing um, really complicated Spanish guitar, doing Fear of the Dark, or um, Orion with an orchestra or something. These things seem to make sense to me. Of course, five people dressed as frogs doing, um, like I said, hip hop metal cover versions of journey and foreigner and europe and the final countdown and then appearing at a festival taking the slot that should be there for a real band now i have a problem with that so but you know i'm a cranky old dude what are you going to do so when you use the word pointless perversion of the original song you have to understand i suppose that um in many terms what's happened is that people 10 years ago, they cracked the algorithm. They understood what people liked and shared and they built a business. And so doing these kind of covers is just business as usual. That's just how they make their living. Because to be a YouTube channel that makes money enough for you to live on, you're going to need 40, 50,000 subscribers. At least you're going to need 40, 50, 100, 150,000 views regularly on videos every week. They're going to have to have that for you to make, let's say, some kind of weekly wage. So go and look at some of these um, examples that you're giving and look at the amount of subscribers and they are in the millions, some of them. Um, and look, there's nothing wrong with being, um, you know, a 14, 15 year old kid who's or 16 year old kid who subscribes to these things and just finds them fun. That's fine. But it's just like I said, when you think to yourself, well, that's a lot at that festival could be taken by a real band um, that it starts to grate with me. But hey, maybe it's not meant for me and maybe there's room for everybody. Maybe or maybe not. And I'm going to round it out with what is actually a really, really good question. Um, do you think now in modern times with the availability of social media and everybody being not only able to but freely offering their most unsolicited opinions on every single topic, in brackets, whether it affects them or not, 
close brackets, has created a time when people feel they actually are entitled to your opinion, especially if you are somewhat in the public space and or just a singer in a heavy metal band. This is a great question. I've often said, hey, I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band. And I mean, look, there's a certain risk involved in putting out so many words for people to listen to. But at the same time, I also think that um, if people are looking to, let's say, misconstrue something I've said or assume something about me without ever even asking me or knowing anything about me, they're going to do that anyway. And the bigger you get, let's say, the more well-known you get, the more social media following you have, the more influence you have, the more people listen to you, what you say. Take Adam from Behemoth, for example. He has a huge social media presence. People get very upset with him when he posts sometimes some of his, um, you know, outrageous um, or kind of like deliberately um, Loki-like devil-may-care attitude to things. I mean, I know him and that's what he's doing. He's poking the bear. And we all should be allowed to poke the bear because, like I said before many times, I'm a freedom of speech more or less absolutist. Well, not more or less because that wouldn't be absolute, would it? Now, I know that comes with problems and caveats, but the alternative, believe me, is way, is way, way worse because, um, you know, that censorship is the cornerstone of tyranny as you're beginning, as many people are beginning to uh, uncover now recently um, with many, many of the threads and discussions on what's been happening censored by social media etc or tech but um it, it is true there are people who assume they're entitled to know your opinion about things they're, they assume they're entitled to know who you are sometimes i get you know messages from people um answering things i said in the podcast as if they're they know me now this, of course, is the nature of social media. This is the nature of um, being able to just literally contact anyone, anywhere, um, of any, you know, any, let's put it in small and big letters, celebrity or well, person who's known to some degree or not me in my microcosm or whatever. I've had messages from, let's say, big comedians or big musicians out of the blue going, hey, love your podcast, etc. And you're like, oh, right. But the ability that they have to be able to just reach out, we all do, to just reach out means that, Everyone is um, everyone is literally um, a second away, so to speak. Now, whether they respond or not, but of course, um, it is true that people feel they are entitled to your opinion, or they also judge your silence, which I think is very strange. The idea that things are assumed about you if you don't wish to comment, and plenty of people just want to be musicians and just want to be left alone. I just happen to be one who says a lot for better or for worse. But at least the podcast, for example, I explain things on my own terms. So if somebody really does want to misunderstand me, I can point to, say, podcast episode 61 and go, well, you know, it's all documented there if you really can be bothered to go through it. But you do realise, as I said in last week's podcast, that most of it is just about winning. It's just about bringing people down. It's about trying to cancel people. It's about um, trolling. It's just about, um, it's not really about uh, exactly what you say it can be just um, we think you're friends with somebody that we think we don't like but we don't really know but we've never asked them or you're being judged on something you said when you were 20 or 18 and believe me 18 year old men are um, beyond stupid um, and impulsive and idiotic and so being judged on the things you said when you were 18 I mean we would all be hung by our own petard so to speak um, and now I'm quite under, I'm quite understanding of the fact that I'm glad I was 18 before any of this um, online stuff existed in the the internet world, the internet world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I'm glad that I had my childhood before that was part of humanity because 
um, you were allowed to be an idiot, to make mistakes, to do silly things. And now everything is documented instantly. So I do have sympathy with some of the urges and impulses of uh, younger people to want to um, hold people to account because that's kind of the society that they've grown up in, which is an instant form of like, dislike, um, you know, validation, um, confirmation, bias, all this kind of stuff. But eventually you have to step outside that. Now, whether people are able to, I don't know. But it is true. There are people who message me who go, I notice you haven't said anything about this. And it's like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not your right to accuse me of um, not having spoken about things. There are plenty of things I don't say anything about. There's lots of things I don't know anything about. Surely, as the proverb says, I think it's um, Confucius, wise man uh, thinks all he says, fool says all he thinks. I often think about that. Um, sorry, Confucius, if that's not you. But if you're not really that well informed, then maybe don't say very much about it. Um, because that's, of course, that goes against the instant nature and the, the kind of... Um, methadone-like um, narcissistic gratification that comes with posting and getting all these likes and likes and likes and, you know, um, more power to you and whatever else they, the superlatives might be underneath. Um, if I don't really know or I haven't really formed an opinion or maybe I've only read a book or two or um, certainly <laughs> I, I try not to comment based on just reading the headline, which plenty of people do, as I talked about last week in the podcast, um, I just posted something about Pfizer's comments. People tore strips off each other in the comments. And I said, hey, it's just a picture of a Reuters headline, which is their profits. Think about it. You don't need to respond instantly, but everybody feels they need to constantly engage. And I suppose that's the, um, the drug-like uh, quality of social media. And we have to admit it. Well, we are addicted, all of us, me too. And so that little methadone kick of bringing someone down a peg, getting the like, getting the dislike, whatever it is, that's almost impossible to be um, alien from not right now. And so I'm glad that I had my um, you know childhood away from that. But it is true. Um, you can say, hey, these are just my opinions. They're my hypotheticals. I'm just musing over what may happen. I'm not. And you may say to someone, I'm not nailed on 100% of this, black or white. My opinions are gray and some of them are even contradictory, but that's how we form opinions, which is by being contradictory, by, um, you know, the, the many people use the word um, double down or they say, oh, U-turn as if a U-turn is quite a handy thing to be able to do to admit, OK, that wasn't particularly correct. Um, I have done a U-turn. I've informed my opinion. The amount of people in the last year and a half who said, follow the science to me. And I go, I don't think you really understand what science means. Science is the constantly updating. It is constantly updating itself by its understanding of new metrics of measurement, um, empirical data, all those kind of things, and the rational observation of the world around us. And these things do change. Once upon a time, we thought that, um, you know, the, the sun went around the earth. And then we realized, you know, I guess... Our Galileo Galilei's heliocentric view of science wasn't appreciated, or is it non-heliocentric? Whatever, it wasn't appreciated by the um, the Pope of the time, and um, our man paid for that. And it's something similar now when you um, contravene the religious doctrine or religious dogma of whatever happens to be the microcosm of the argument. And it can be just as simple as something musical, or like I said, just an observation of a pharmaceutical's profit margin. And since when did normal people 
stick up for a pharmaceutical's profit margin anyway. But it's a very good question. Everyone is available at all times. There's many people who message me on a Sunday and go, what are you, on Monday they go, what, why the fuck didn't you reply to me on Sunday? It's like, hey, it's Sunday. Um, are we all on at all times? Um, you didn't comment on this. Yeah, I know. Well, I didn't see it because I was too busy, um, I don't know, cycling my bike, playing football. But I don't know, something else. Um, but like I said, I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band. And um, yeah, look, hey, you get things wrong. You inform your own opinion. You change your opinion about things. This is the nature of being human. And I think it's something that we could do with a little more of, i.e. the um, rather helpful maneuver of the U-turn. But of course, if you do that, then the, the fiery mob are going to hold your feet to the fire. Anyway, episode 70 is an all over the place ramble about what I just rambled about. So, Agitators Anonymous, episode 70. Go over and follow me on Patreon, Patreon, Instagram, YouTube channel. There's random heavy metal chat interviews with all sorts of other people, other singers in heavy metal bands whose opinion doesn't matter either, etc., etc. Over and out, planet Satan, I am coming. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.